This evening's New Testament reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you speak into every area of our lives. And you do so not to condemn us, but to renew us. And we ask that you would do that, even as we enter into this uh, sensitive topic. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have been working through this letter to the first century church in Thessalonica. And uh, it it was a, a city that was located in a strategic seaport. And so a lot of folk were coming in and out of that place in that city. And Paul is encouraging these uh, Thessalonians that they would live faithfully till the Son of God returns. Christian faith teaches that God came once and God will come again. Uh, That God will return to the earth that he has made and that he loves. And so we ended last week where Paul was saying, I want you to abound in faith and love, more and more faith and love. And now he's going to apply it specifically to a couple different areas. This week, sexuality. Next week, Mike will be looking at work and some other topics. And he says to them specifically, I don't want you to imitate the practices of the culture around you, which he refers to as the Gentiles, And by that, he might be talking about just the general behavior of the Gentiles, or he might be referring to the cultic practice of visiting temple prostitutes that was prevalent in that day and age. But as he writes, he reminds us of something essential, and that is even our sexuality is a matter of what the Christian faith would call discipleship that that part of life where God renews us after his image, where he makes us after the moral beauty of Jesus Christ, even our sexuality falls under that. When you think of discipleship, do you think about your sexuality? Paul certainly says we should be, and the New Testament addresses it. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we host uh, sexual wholeness groups for men and women, and why we have a same-sex attraction group as well because we're trying to take seriously this discipleship, uh, and we want to urge you to take advantage of those things as you grow. But underneath that are some foundational beliefs. 
One is the belief that when God created us and created our sexuality, he created something that was good, something that you find celebrated throughout the Bible, Uh, whether it's in the first couple pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis, whether it's the Psalm, Psalm 45, or the whole book of Song of Songs. Uh, Unashamed affirmation, celebration about the gift of sexuality. But that's not the end of the story, because we also understand that as sin entered the world, everything suffered corruption, including sexuality. And so selflessness became selfishness. Love got distorted into lust. Our culture understands this when it, we understand better how money can corrupt. And we even understand how power can corrupt but we don't quite get how sexuality can corrupt. About the only area we talk about that is in the case of consent or abuse. But beside that, we really don't have a wider vision of how our sexuality can either be a blessing or actually do harm to ourselves and other people. And so the limits of restraint aren't talked about often. Last week, when we ended our passage, I mentioned uh, the insight from uh, sociologist Brene Brown, who basically said that the most loving and generous people are the most boundaried people. The most loving and generous people are the most boundary, meaning the people that can say, no, I'm drawing a line here. And I think boundary is maybe a contemporary way we can think about holiness. You know, God has boundaries that he's put in place so that we might be loving and generous, and the boundary he's put in place for sexuality is the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. This is the testimony you find all throughout the Bible. And so, when we do that, what we find in this passage, it yields two different things. It yields two things, honor and protection. Honor and protection. And so, that's what I'd like us to explore together in the time that we have. First of all, how sexual boundaries result in honor. Now, to honor someone is to treat them with respect, is to treat them with esteem. Uh, today is Mother's Day. We honor mothers. We honor those that are doing mothering work, as Mike said, mentors, teachers. And, uh, you know, modern-day Mother's Day, even though there's always been some observance of Mother's Day throughout as far back as the Greeks and the Romans, Um, Modern-day Mother's Day actually was invented in 1908 by a woman, Anna Jarvis, who wanted to honor her mother who cared for soldiers uh, on both sides of the Civil War. And she also became an advocate of public health, and she formed a, a group called the Mother's Day Group. And so Anna Jarvis decided to have a memorial in her church in Grafton, West Virginia, It's not too uh, far from us, right? And it caught on. I mean, it just spread like wildfire all over the nation. And uh, they actually went to Congress and asked that it be made an official holiday, and Congress laughed and rejected it and said, no, we're not going to do that. If we do that, then we'll have to have Mother-in-Law Day, and we don't want to do that. But thankfully, the president prevailed, Woodrow Wilson. He made it a holiday. But this is the interesting thing. Not Not long after that, Ann Jarvis protested and tried to get rid of Mother's Day because she felt it had been uh, commercialized and exploited by just, you know, gift-giving and 
uh, consumerism. Um, well, here you have someone that began with a desire to honor, but felt like it led to exploitation or corruption. You could say the same thing about sexuality in our culture. It's, you could say the same thing about the way we think about it. God meant it for honor. God meant it for us to honor ourselves, honor him, other other people, but it's led to a place of corruption. So Paul says, I want each one of you to know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And do you hear what he said there? To know God is to also know the honor that he has bestowed upon you. To know God is also to know the honor that he has bestowed upon you. And this runs all throughout the Scripture. In the book of Genesis, we find that he says, let us make the man and woman in our image and likeness. And then we're actually called to sing about it in Psalm 8. He wants his people singing this line. And he made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So again, honor coming upon mankind. But then we're also took in the book of Romans that when sin entered the world, there was a result, and that man and, men and women began to dishonor themselves. Sin has this self-destructive thing. It began to dishonor themselves, and particularly, it talks about the degrading of their bodies. It enters again into sexuality. But the gospel then brings in this wonderful picture of the Son of God who is understood to be the groom of God's people, God's people being the bride, that the Son of God comes and that he lays down his life for his bride, that the Son of God comes, he lays down his life, that he might take on our shame, our sin, and our guilt, and he might give us his righteousness. And when you go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, you actually find Paul talking about that. He talks about earthly marriage and the way that husbands ought to love their wives, and then he is constantly going back about our spiritual marriage with Christ. And listen to what he says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The gospel tells the story of a spiritually adulterous people, like us, people that are not faithful to their relationship with God, he tells that story, but also of God who comes and takes his bride and he puts on the white dress again. And so for any and all of us here, whatever sin you have in your life, whatever shame you have in your life, whatever wounds you have in your life related to your sexuality, through faith in Jesus Christ, you can find yourself holy and blameless today, completely washed clean and righteous in his sight. And that's not just me encouraging you. This is the word of the gospel. This is Christ outside of ourselves, God outside of ourselves, declaring for those that are attached to the groom, they become righteous and holy in his sight, no matter what the story is. This is the good news, and it provides the background for us understanding how sexuality works in an honoring way. Now, you've heard me say before that um, our culture tends to see sexuality in a couple different ways. It sees sexuality as appetite to be fulfilled. 
It views it as self-expression. It views it as primarily an emblem of freedom. It views it as something where other people can be a vehicle for my pleasure. We can even purchase other people's sexuality. This is how our culture thinks about sexuality. But we find a couple different ways that the Bible tries to renew our minds. First of all, it talks about how do we think about ourselves in sexuality. In the book of Corinthians, Paul is writing to um, a church that struggles with sexual immorality, a church not unlike our own culture. And in that, uh, he says, I want you to remember that your body is a temple, okay? I want you to understand this, that the thrice holy God, the Holy Spirit of God, dwells in you like he does in a sacred temple. His full presence is with you. The greatest honor has been bestowed upon those that believe the presence of God in your life. He then goes on to say, how do we then think about our relationship with God and our sexuality? In that same letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know why I don't want you to join yourself with a prostitute or commit sexual immorality? It's because of this. Anybody that, anybody that is joined with the Lord is joined with him in spirit. Anybody that, it, anybody that is joined with the Lord is then joined with him in his spirit. That means a Christian always takes God to bed with him. A Christian always takes God to bed with him. He's present. He's in their heart and their soul. And then the Bible moves to how it, we, we begin to view one another. If you go to the Song of Songs, it's a beautiful example where you have both sensuality and honor working at the same time. Modern culture has a tough time keeping those things together, sensuality and honor, but the Bible brings them together. In Song of Songs, you have a king that's writing an ode to his bride. And as he does so, uh, he refers to the taste of her lips. He refers to as sister, which in the near ancient, uh, uh, ancient Near East culture was a term of endearment. And then he refers to her body as a garden. Listen to the words here. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. How beautiful is your love. How much better is your love than wine. Your lips strip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Amen. Amen. That's right. I may have to use that later on Meg. But you see... You know, sex is not uh, described there as kinky or dirty or degrading, you know, because that's often the way our culture will go and sin will take us, that when the more passionate, the more degrading it gets. But instead of the more passionate, actually, you know, moves to this honor, and the marriage covenant is the key that unlocks it. Now, recently, uh, Pope Francis released a new statement on family. And he was critiquing uh, sex education in the way it just simply tells kids about safe sex. And he goes, but we, we, it's like we give no thought to the maturity and the values and the commitment that's needed to actually have a healthy sexual life. 
You know, we're just telling kids, hey, have safe sex, forgetting about all those other things. And he says, sexual union and marriage is all-inclusive commitment enriched by everything that has preceded it. It's enriched by everything that has preceded it. Now think for a second about uh, a man and a woman that choose to uh, wait to enter into their sexual relationship until they're married. Think about everything that goes before it. Okay, they get together, they begin to date, and because they're not able to jump into bed, they have to actually talk, right? They have to learn to develop a friendship and a conversation in the community, but more than that, then they introduce that person to their community, and they get to know their best friends and maybe their co-workers and their parents. And as they do that, uh, they come under evaluation, right? The community begins to go, hey, are you an honorable person? And that's not a bad thing. The book of Proverbs says that humility comes before honor. It's a good thing that a community would have to look at me or look at someone that's pursuing a friend. And then on top of that, think about what else happens. As they're in that community learning about this potential spouse, and they, they learn the honor this person has in that community. You know, they hear about their life. And you know, the rehearsal dinner is a great example of this. A rehearsal dinner is, you know, you have this life story unfolded. People stand up and they give toast. They talk about the friendship, the heroicism. You know, and then you see the slideshow of them from a little kid all the way through their lives. And so the person that's planning to pursue them is sitting there hearing about this wonderful, uh, you know, extolling of them in honor and glory. And all that happens before they ever come together. Now, what sort of sexuality would that result in? Esteem. I mean, compare that to the the alternative of hooking up with someone you barely know or pornography, where there's no story of honor. There's nothing involved in that way. Paul, uh, earlier in this letter, said to the Thessalonians, you're my joy, you're my crown, you're my glory. This is what God says under his people. And this is the view that we ought to have toward uh, the person that God gives us, if he should, with sexuality. And so boundaries give us honor. But second of all, they lead us to protection. Um, Much of the public discussion that we have about this, much of the public discussion for the last several years has really revolved more about rights, sexual rights. So, you know, uh, the right to have sex with whom you want to have sex with, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. Uh, Not a whole lot of talk about injustice, mostly of freedom and rights to have sex. Now, in recent years, thankfully, there's been more talk about um, justice. For instance, the No Means No campaign on college campuses. We're saying, you know, it's not right to coerce someone, to manipulate someone in a sexual relationship. But that, that's a step forward, but it doesn't go as far as the Scripture has always gone in this ancient wisdom. Because in the Bible, what you find is the Bible takes us beyond just the question of consensual sex. It takes us beyond that to something that is more, um, well, it's the question, is this actually good for this person? Is it good for me to view someone's body and sexuality mostly in terms of my fulfillment and my pleasure, to deal with my own void of loneliness 
or my need for affirmation? Is that good? Is it good to ask for the most sacred part of someone without the safety of a marriage covenant and a promise? Is it a good thing to ask someone to open up a part of them that is so connected with their soul without the security of a covenant relationship? Is it okay for me to take advantage of my neighbor even if they consent to it? Well, the scripture would say no. It's a higher calling than consent and just desire because that's the other part of it too. And our day would say, if you simply have desire, that's justification for sex. It would say no because there are going to be times where maybe my neighbor's desires, what they desire isn't good for them. And what kind of neighbor am I to them? And so it results in protection, and this is what Paul says here, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. First of all, he talks about, as he says that, I'll read it again, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. First of all, there's protection of intimacy. You hear him referencing to that person as a brother and a sister. This is where the faith community can become a radical model and example. A brother and a sister. You know, we live in a day where there's very little boundary. Uh, you know, friends now become friends with benefits. You know, now there's uh, my, not just my coworkers, but my work spouse, right? My work husband, my work wife. Now, you know, all these boundaries sort of get blurred in our day. And in the faith community, God is helping us recover the beauty of individual identities, different identities. We live in such a sexualized time where all relationships get sexualized, but God instead says, no. There, a friendship has its own beauty and power. And we live in what we call the family of God. Our understanding is this. He will say, treat you know, younger women as uh, sister, or women with absolute purity as sisters, as you know, brothers, as mothers and fathers, as sons and daughters, renewing our mind about how we see one another, being able to detox from the way that we've been taught and what we've seen a protecting of intimacy, also a protection of trust. Some translate that no one should wrong, transgress, or take advantage. The Greek word actually means to take advantage by way of deception, to deceive someone. You know, if you know someone is generous to a fault and you love them, you wouldn't ask them for money. If you know someone has such a high sense of duty that they can't say no, if you love them, you won't ask them to do something. If you know someone is lonely, if you know they're rebounding from a relationship, if you know their marriage isn't going so well, if you know that they're drunk, if you know that they're struggling with some sort of addiction, if you love them, if you love them, you'll protect them and protect their sexuality if you know they're vulnerable. And deception as well goes into the relationship of not, you know, showering people with affirmation and false vows. Or basically asking people again to open up that part of them that's so sacred and beautiful just for a momentary experience that would go. And so protection says, I'm going to fight against the impulsive part of me so that I might honor a brother and sister. But also protecting means boundaries itself. Um, Transgress can mean overstepping, violating something, you know, overstepping a relationship. And so that means as I think about my relationships, I honor the boundary of what they are. 
If God has given me a friendship, I don't want to overstep that friendship. If he's given me a relationship with a spouse of a, you know, a married couple, I want to honor that. You know, so I'm not going to be bonding with them emotionally in a way that wouldn't be wise. It's this idea that together, you know, we're sort of watching over each other. Uh, Dan Allender, who is a wonderful counselor and has spent a lot of time counseling uh, sexually abused uh, abuse victims, um, he's, he will say sometimes as someone is unfolding their story before him, and they're beginning to tell their details of the, uh, what they suffered. If it's too early, he will say, now, why don't you hold off in giving me those details because we don't have enough trust yet. We don't have enough trust. You don't trust me enough to be able to open up. And in that, he's wanting to protect them in their vulnerability. And so we as the people of God do this with one another. This is the vision God has. But why do we do it? All because of the Lord. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, you know, we're used to avengers on the film, right? They fight against evil. Well, no one fights against evil more than the God of heaven and earth. He is the one that wants to go, you know, he, any sort of abuse, any taking advantage of, all those things, he will be the defender. None of it will, will you know, escape his gaze or escape his judgment He's jealous for his bride. He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for you and your sexuality. You know, he wants you first. He wants your intimacy first, your heart and soul first. Even if you're a married person here today, it's the same. And it says in verse 8, for those that disregard this, they're not blowing off tradition or fundamentalism or just religion. Because that's typically how it's viewed. This is just, you know, archaic religion. This is oppression. This is stuff that society's just put on us. No, he's saying you're actually disregarding God. It's God who has put these boundaries in place from the very beginning of the creation. And t- twice we find the commandments in and through the Lord Jesus. In this discussion, we'll sometimes hear folks, well, Jesus never spoke about that. And Paul is saying, yes, he did. He spoke through his apostles as we heard a couple weeks ago, that the Word of God from the apostles is the Word of God. And Jesus did talk about this area of our lives. But there's a community side of it, too. Uh, You know, speaking about Avengers, uh, in the original Avengers, the comic book, it said that the Avengers gathered together because they would fight foes that no one superhero could fight. They needed the community. They needed the whole. And you and I need the community when it comes to this. Um, our sexuality is not a foe that we fight. At times it can feel that way. Our sexuality is a gift that God has given to us, but it is so powerful. I mean, it's like nuclear power. It can be a wonderful energy, or it can be so destructive. And it's something that we really need help. We need prayer. We need one another to help us. And in addition, we're told that God has given to us His Holy Spirit. The very power of God is in you and I so that we might live in a way that honors him, honors our neighbor, honors God. And so as we wait for the return of our groom, as we wait for the Son of God to come back to earth, 
as we wait for what's called the wedding feast of the Lamb, where God's people are going to be before him, when, until we wait for what's called the consummation, where God becomes one with his people, and they're perfected physically and emotionally and spiritually, as we wait, as the Thessalonians were waiting, as we wait for God to claim us, as we wait for him you know, to, to love us face to face in passion and purity, as we wait for those things, let's honor one another. And let's protect one another and our neighbor. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of uh, sexuality. Thank you for the ways that you have loved us. I pray that you would bless us toward this end in Christ's name. Amen.